Growing up, one of my mom's hobbies was painting with oils, and she did still lifes and uh, landscapes, and they'd hang in our home, or she would give uh, them away to friends or family. And when I was in the sixth grade, I remember uh, she was working on a very large canvas, and for several months, she was up in the room she used as her studio, uh, especially excited about this work in progress. And one day she finished and she announced to everyone she'd be having an unveiling party. And she set a date. And so uh, that large mystery canvas hung uh, over the fireplace mantle. It was completely covered, draped over with a large sheet of fabric there until one Friday evening, uh, these grown-ups came from everywhere for a party. They were all dressed up, and after fancy hors d'oeuvres, the room quieted down and everyone gathered around the painting. My mom unveiled the painting. The sheet of fabric was pulled away. And to my delight, it was a beautiful seascape of greens and blues and grays, and this beautiful painting was revealed. There was no more wondering what mom was up to all those days. It was out in the open for all to see. That's exactly what the title Revelation means, the Greek word apocalypsis. It means unveiling, to disclose, to reveal something that was once hidden from view. That's exactly what the book of Revelation is all about. It takes away the veil. Jesus Christ is king. Here's how he takes his rightful place by judging a wicked world and rescuing his dearly loved people, and bringing an end to human history as we know it and establishing his great and glorious reign on this earth. Revelation, really, Revelation is uh, what uh, a picture of what Tennyson describes when he wrote that famous line, that one far-off divine event toward which all creation Moves And this morning, we're going to take some time and introduce this book because this book needs a little more time than other books in the Bible. And then we'll consider the first few verses called the prologue, but we won't get any further than that. But after this week, it will move a lot faster. First, uh, I want to remind you that the contents of this book is in keeping with the rest of the Bible. In other words, I sometimes wonder why all the oohs and ahs about Revelation when really uh, the Revelation and the contents that we're going to read is the entire theme of the 66 books in the Bible. I mean, Jude just told us, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly godly way they've done it, and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude has already summed up the entire book of Revelation. Paul, 
the apostle, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. Peter, but, on the, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of God will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see him coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. 568 times directly in the 66 books of the Bible, 2,500 times indirectly alluded to. Here's the great theme of the great book. Hang in there, believers. Jesus is coming back. He is Lord. He's taking us to be with him. He's going to judge the world in righteousness, establish his kingdom. Therefore, live godly lives and make the most of every opportunity. Rejoice and be glad. Done. That, that's the book of Revelation. But when we get to the book of Revelation, it's like, whoa, whoa. why the big surprise? Well, I, I think there's a reason. It's a blow-by-blow blow graphic description of what the other 65 books have been warning us about. And now, it's, now Revelation says, here's the picture. And there's no turning back. Now, the second thing I want to say is that we see from the title that the purpose of the book, this most intriguing, fascinating book, is to to reveal mystery, not create them. That's the whole point, is revelation, unveiling. Commentator Henry Morris says, revelation is not hard to understand. It's just hard to imagine. Now, how can Dr. Morris say that the book is not hard to understand with all of those numbers and all of those strange images, lamb, a lamb with seven eyes and a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Well, in this introduction, I want to give you some keys to the symbols that you're going to find here in Revelation. Uh, number one, every symbol in the book has a literal object it stands for. In other words, you start with, with chapter 1. Jesus is seen with a sword coming out of his mouth. There's a literal uh, referent to that in that it is the word of God. And we just get a great picture of what his word is like, a sword. And so everything that is given in symbol has a literal object that it represents. Secondly... 46 times the symbols in Revelation are explained in the text. Number three, most of the other ones are already named in the Old Testament and used and explained there. 
So our difficulty in understanding Revelation comes down to a weak knowledge of the Bible as a whole, and especially ignorance of the Old Testament. Well, listen to how many verses from the Old Testament will be in the book of this prophecy. Daniel is quoted 53 times. Psalms are quoted 43 times. Zechariah is quoted 15 times. Ezekiel is quoted 42 times. Isaiah is quoted 79 times. Exodus is quoted 27 times. Jeremiah is quoted 22 times. So if you're not familiar with Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, as most American Christians are not, then you're going to have a problem reading and understanding the book of Revelation. It would be kind of like the average Joe who's trying to understand uh, the nightly report on the news, the business report with the NASDAQ and the Dow Jones. Who is Dow Jones? Who, who, what is Dow Jones? The NASDAQ is up, it's down. Who, what, what? It doesn't mean anything to most of us because we aren't schooled in those terms, but John's original readers and hearers would be. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, 265 of them allude to 550 Old Testament verses. So I wanted to know what percent of the Old Testament is in Revelation. So I texted Zach the numbers. My Zach, who's a math genius, he builds rockets for a living, and so... Uh, I just text him. It saves me a lot of time and trouble. Zach, uh, what, what's the percent of this? And so I look at it, and speaking of symbols, the percent is, I look at it and see 66.6%. I'm like, you're kidding me. Oh, no. And then I put on my glasses. It's 65.6%. Phew. <laughs> Why symbolism? Why can't you just come out and just talk straight about it? Well, first of all, it helps God's people because they should be familiar with all of these symbols. And it protected them from the Roman Empire who was busy killing them. So just like the parables, it lets God's people in and keeps the bad guys guessing. The second thing about using symbols is it's very helpful to understand where words fall short. Paul the Apostle was caught up to heaven, and he lived to talk about it. And he said, I saw things that are inexpressible with words. I'd love to tell you about it, but there are no words, but there are symbols. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, there's going to be this dictator, but let's call him the beast. Oh, it's better than just calling him a dictator. You could say, hey, there's going to be this one world government, this world system, but let's call it Babylon the Great and contrast that prostitute with the pure bride. All right, symbols are good. 
So John's original audience is familiar with the language and with the symbols and what a, uh, what a blessing this book was to them. So the content is crucial. John is writing, the Lord is revealing, during a reign of terror under Roman Emperor Domitian. It is 95 AD. He, uh, this emperor has demanded public worship exclusively rendered to him. He goes by our Lord and God. He has a temple. If anybody does not call him Lord and God and bow down to him and give to him and worship him, you were publicly ridiculed at least, but then economically deprived. You were thrown into prison or exiled, and then you were killed. John is giving us this disclosure from Jesus himself exiled to a Greek isle called Patmos where he was sentenced to live out his life in the, in the mines, in the labor camps. And it was on the Lord's day he was there working and God gave him this vision and so the context will determine the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book isn't Jesus revealing to curious people, hey, we got some questions about the end of the world. Lay it out for us. It's a pastoral concern for people who are suffering. So the Lord is saying, you are suffering with the visible eye, all you see is a godless, Christ-rejecting world, hostile to God's word and will and to his people. God's truth is disregarded, and people love darkness instead of light. Well, hold on here. Let me <laughs> unveil something. Let me show you some advanced history. God is still on the throne. The Lord Jesus is seen, unveiled in all his radiant splendor. God's loving vindication of his people is unveiled. Unveiled is God's fierce wrath and judgment against evil. And unveiled is what every good uh, Disney movie knows, that goodness and truth prevails. The good guy wins in the end. But it is a pastoral concern. This knowledge, this advanced history that you're seeing was meant to comfort those who suffer to give hope to those who are struggling and to encourage us to be faithful and to endure. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, keep slugging it out for Jesus because it's gonna be worth it. It's worth it now. And boy, will it be worth it when all of this happens. Take a look and see. Now, for the quick outline, I've got it up here for you to follow with me. Uh, the 404 verses uh, really uh, outline, really, I found Henry Morris is a commentator that really lays it out so easily. Chapters 1 through 3, unspecified number of years because it's really talking about the church history, and, and this letter is addressed to seven real churches in modern-day Turkey. And some believe, as I do, that there is a prophetic a way of looking at those seven churches that kind of talk about church history as a whole. How long church history is, is from the day of Pentecost until the rapture. That's church history. So, so far it's been about 2,000 years. 
chapters 1 through 3. Now, after chapter 4, the rapture has happened. And now chapters 4 through 19 is about the tribulation. Most scholars say, and I believe this as well, we are not here from 4 to 19. And I'll make a case for that later. Chapter 20, the thousand-year reign. And chapters 21 and 22, the, the eternal age, endless years there. So with that said, now you kind of have it in your head. Let's dive into the prologue. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So, lots of vital information here. Uh, let's walk through these verses. Uh, Roman numeral number one, coming soon to a neighborhood near you, the end of your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> And the beginning of a new one, I should say. We always talk about the end, and we forget it's the end of human history as we know, the beginning of true uh, history as God sees it and has established it. And so the first thing that we see, it's a revelation here that, that Jesus is the one revealing, and Jesus is the object of the revelation. So in the Greek, if you look at the revelation of Jesus Christ, it can mean either that Jesus is the revealer or it's the revelation about Jesus Christ, and both are true. It's not the revelation of John. John is dictating. Rather, John is transcribing what uh, the Lord is dictating. And that's the way all scriptures are born. Above all, you must understand this one thing, that no prophecy of scripture comes about by a prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in man. But holy men, moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit, uh, wrote as God enabled them. That is Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 20. So, yes, we're, we're going to see a lot of things unveiled. You're going to see the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet. You're going to see a cataclysmic judgment. You're going to see mystery Babylon unveiled. Streets of gold, a great white throne, books in heaven, angels. But you better see the center character, the object and revealer, Jesus Christ because it's about him, and it's really, as one commentator said, it's Christ revealing Christ. He is the author of life. Of course it's about him. Of course he's seated on the throne. So in Revelation 1, you just get it. Here he is in all of his glory. In Revelation 2 and 3, he's the leader in the church. He's the head, uh, the high priest king uh, among the churches. 
And then through the tribulation, he's the reigning, conquering king. And then he comes and establishes himself as the living Lord, king of kings and lord of lords. And so we see who's doing the revealing. And then, wonderfully, we see uh, now when the contents of this revelation actually happen. So it says there in verse 2 and verse 3, he's writing about future events that must soon take place. And verse 3, because time is near. Let's talk about that. Now, biblical time, as we always talk about, is given to us in relative terms because God, who considers a thousand years to one day as one day, is very different in his perspective than ours. With that said, however, the soon in must soon take place, really, here I'm quoting from commentator John Walwood, the emphasis with this word in the Greek is not so much that it comes soon in our way of thinking soon, but that when it does come, it's sudden, like labor pains that come upon a woman quick and without escape. So three times in Revelation chapter 22, the Lord will say, I'm coming quickly. That was 2,000 years ago. In, uh, here's a great comment on that. When Jesus says he's coming quickly, he's saying, this destined event is moving ever closer, inching ever closer 24-7, that his appearing will come with divine determination, conciseness, suddenness, and with great surprise. The second word there, he says, I'm revealing these things because time is near. That's verse 3. The church from day 1 there in Acts, has lived with the idea that the Lord's coming and the end of the world and the establishing of the eternal reign of Christ was imminent. You hear that word a lot. It's a theological word, really. Well, we use the word as well in conversation. It just means it could happen any second. In the Greek, interesting, when he says, hey, I'm revealing these things that because the time is near, the Greek word is kairos, which means season of time, as opposed to the Greek word chronos, which where we get the word chronology, or aura, where we get the word hour. Those words are not used. So it's not about uh, because uh, time is near in the sense of click, click, click. Time is near in the sense that uh, next on God's prophetic calendar comes the rapture, comes his coming. In other words, he's created to remedy our fall. He's already done all the hard work. There's only one thing left. Time is near in the, in the sense that God, in God's redemptive program, there's nothing else left to do than to close the door, bring his people to safety, and judge the world and come back. That's next. That's what the word means, is that it's coming up next. And what is coming up next? Well, it's the rapture of the church. It is not the second coming, as we often think of him lighting up the sky. The next prophetic event on God's calendar is the taking away of God's people so that, starting at verses chapter 4, the tribulation can come. No one knows about that day or hour, Jesus said, 
It'll be like back in Noah's time when the Son of God comes. In those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, celebrating weddings, getting engaged, business as usual, up until the day Noah entered the ark. They were clueless about what was going to happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it's going to be when I come back. Two men will be working in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be working in a kitchen. One will be taken, the other left. And then that goes on to be elaborated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and following. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words because it is Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. He saves us from the wrath that is coming upon the world. So paraphrase of just your opening verses is, here's what's suddenly gonna come on the earth. I'm telling you this because it's the very next event on my to-do list. Now, how do we know that the church is out by chapter 4? After chapter 4, first of all, you need to know the word for us in the Bible is called ecclesia in the Greek. It means the called out ones. It's translated church. And it's used to describe us 115 times in the New Testament. That's who we are. From chapter 4 and verse 1, to the end of Revelation, you never hear the word once. Zero. Why? We're not there. That's why. He doesn't talk about us. He talks about saved in the general sense to those who will come to faith in that terrible time. He calls them the tribulation saints, a general idea, but the church of the living God in Christ the called out ones who belong to the body of Christ, not one mention in the entire book when the judgment starts from chapter four. And so more about that later. Let's close with this beautiful, unique promised blessing uh, for those who just merely read the word. Anybody here just feel like, man, I, I could use a blessing. Go ahead. Let me see your hand. I thought so, because my hand would be raised. I could use a blessing, and here's what he says. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because time is near. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, does it mean, you know, I'm going to read this and listen to it, and then, you know, everything is going to go well for me, I'm going to come into some money, I'm going to be financially blessed. Everything's going to go my way. All I need to do is just read this book out loud and bam, like a fortune cookie. So easy. Just crack it open, read it, and boom, automatic magic blessing. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. First of all, it means more than just reading and listening. He says, and take it to heart. The Greek there is to treasure, to guard, to value, to implement it into your life. It changes the way we live. Therefore, we will be blessed. And so I started to think about what does that blessing look like as we come to the table to remember? Well, 
first of all, Jesus' glory is revealed, right? So we see in chapter one, this face shining like the sun in all its brilliance, eyes like blazing fire, a voice like the roar of the ocean. Just jaw-dropping glory, heart-stopping descriptions. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The blessing of awe to Christ and a surrendered life. When I fall in love with that, that awesome, powerful God with blazing eyes of fire, no, that's my father. That's the one who created me. That's the one who died on the cross. Look at him now. More intimacy. The Lord reaches down when he's dead before him and says, wow, I surrender everything. And, and he touches, he takes his right hand and he placed it on me and said, don't be afraid. How blessed can you be when you take that to heart? That, that could be me standing there or laying there. Intimacy, awe with God, you will be blessed. Yieldedness to God. The second thing I see Judgment upon evildoers really creates a passion for holiness. I'll be blessed. You'll be blessed if you take these things to heart. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts and idolaters and all liars... Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Most pastors just skip over that. I don't even like reading it. But what does he say? You'll be blessed if you take that to heart. Because what, what will that do? It will work in you a desire to be more self-controlled, more serious. You don't want anything named in your life, even a hint of it if it characterizes those who perish. What business is it to have any of those things I just read and people who are lost forever to come in my life? Shouldn't that passage cure you of clicking on porn sites? The sexually immoral are cast into the lake of fire and you get to envision it. He says, how blessed are you? to know that all liars take their place in a place called the second death, eternally. So how soon do you want to go out and just lay a fat lie on somebody? It, you're blessed because you're taking that to heart and, and the Holy Spirit's burning and working and you're separating yourself out and you're letting him have his way and you're confessing your sins and you're walking with God. So the fear of the Lord, and this is the scripture, it says the fear of the Lord. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. So the blessing that he's talking about comes with how our lives are changed and that now I got a double dose of the fear of the Lord. If you believe these words, if you take it to heart, the first angel sounds his trumpet. There comes hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down to the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass burned up. 
The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. And what are, are we doing today? And how much time are we wasting chasing things that can never satisfy and doing things that are immoral? A greater holiness, a greater reverence, a greater seriousness about life and moral choices leads to greater blessing. Blessed are you who read and take this to heart because your life is going to change and you're going to have a greater passion for holiness you read this every day, you're going to be Mr. and Mrs. Self-Controlled, <laughs> right? If you believe. If you're just reading it, oh, I wonder what this means. No, we can't possibly know what this means, so, well, you know, whatever. What do you think he says? You'll be blessed because he knows the devil is going to try to confuse you and cause you anxiety and keep you out of the book that it says Jesus is revealing and unveiling something. And it says in your text, for God's servants, that will be you, that will be me. Let me paraphrase it. Jesus saying, I've got something I want to show you. Oh, why do we stay out of the book that Jesus says, by the way, oh, I want to show you something, but we stay out of it. Why? The enemy knows, oh, this thing is going to cause blessing and holiness and generosity and gratefulness. How grateful am I and you to be not among those who oh, perish, but those who enter the joy of paradise. Listen to this stuff. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, us, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's the second blessing. There are seven blessings in the book called the seven Beatitudes of Revelation. The crystal sea, yours. Streets of gold, yours. Bejeweled gates and walled cities, beautiful. Paradise, yours. Eternal crowns, life. A new body that resembles the risen Savior of the Lord, yours. Eternal fellowship with the living God, a new heaven and a new earth, yours. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain because the old is gone, the new has come. Why do you get to go to this royal party? So the blessing of taking this to heart is, is to realize optimism, hope, Security. How can you be insecure when you know the God who's behind all of this has chosen you and lavished his love on you and, and has protected you and called you out and prevented you from enduring any of that and rewarded you and seated you in high places? You're already at the table. He just says, walk it out. The blessing to take that to heart, humility, Offering forgiveness with ease. B, 
being a merciful, nice person generally. Why? Because this is churning in my heart. Look what could happen to me. Most of us, we were on that road and we were really, it was real evident that that's where we were headed, to be cast out. And so the blessing of Revelation, reading, taking it to heart, listening to these truths, studying them, changes our lives and causes us to number our days aright, make right choices to live with godliness and things that eternally bless. And where does it all come down to the table and verse six that we get to next week? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen.